0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and another story from Zane Gray. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This story, The Rube, is the only story from his book, The Redheaded Outfield, we haven't done yet. It's a great story. I just missed it when it got lost among all the other Rube stories, and I thought I had done it, until I double-checked today. Glad I did. These Zane Gray stories are really enjoyed by our listeners, and always rank high in listener numbers. My guess is that baseball is popular with all ages and sexes, and these stories tell of baseball during its golden days, when people played for the love of the game. I won't pontificate beyond that, but I think you get my drift. You'll notice that in this minor league contest, a rock serves his home plate. I love it. I wish Zane Gray had written a hundred more of these. This is the story of how our intrepid coach found his greatest pitcher, the Rube. Enjoy. It was the most critical time I had yet experienced in my career as a baseball manager, and there was more than the usual reason why I must pull the team out. A chance for a business deal depended upon the goodwill of the stockholders of the Worcester Club. On the outskirts of the town was a little cottage that I wanted to buy, and this depended upon the business deal. My whole future happiness depended upon the little girl I hoped to install in that cottage. Coming to the Worcester Eastern League team... I had found a strong aggregation and an enthusiastic following. I really had a team with pennant possibilities. Providence was a strong rival, but I beat them three straight in the opening series, set a fast pace, and likewise set Worcester baseball mad. The Eastern League clubs were pretty evenly matched. Still, I continued to hold the lead until misfortune overtook me. Greg smashed an umpire and had to be laid off. Mullaney got spiked while sliding and was out of the game. Ashwell sprained his ankle and Hirsch broke a finger. Radburn, my great pitcher, hurt his arm on a cold day and he could not get up to his old speed. Stringer, who had batted 371 and led the league the year before, struck a bad spell and couldn't hit a barn door if it was handed up to him. Then came the slump. The team suddenly led down, went to pieces, Played ball that would disgrace an amateur nine. It was a trying time. Here was a great team, strong everywhere. A little hard luck had dug up a slump, and now, day by day, the team dropped in the race. When we reached the second division, the newspapers flayed us. Worcester would never stand for a second division team. Baseball admirers, reporters, fans, especially the fans, are fickle. The admirers quit the reporters grilled us, and the fans, though they stuck to the games with that barnacle-like tenacity peculiar to them, made life miserable for all of us. I saw the pennant slowly fading, and the successful season, and the business deal, and the cottage, and Millie. But when I thought of her, I just could not see failure. Something must be done. But what? I was at the end of my wits, when Jersey City beat us that Saturday, 11-2, to 2, shoving us down to fifth place with only a few percentage points above the Fall River team, I grew desperate, and locking my players in the dressing room, I went after them. They had lain down on me and needed a jar. I told them so, straight and flat, and being bitter, I didn't pick and choose my words too well. And fellows, I concluded, you've got to brace. A little more of this and we can't pull out. I tell you, you're a championship team. "'We had that pennant cinched, a few cuts and sprains and hard luck, and you all quit. You lay down. I've been patient. I've plugged for you. Never a man have I fined or thrown down. But now I'm at the end of my string. I'm out to find you now, and I'll release the first man who shows the least yellow. I play no more substitutes, crippled or not. You guys have got to get in the game.' I waited to catch my breath and expected some such outburst as managers usually get from criticized players. But not a word did I hear. Then I addressed some of them personally. "'Greg, your layoff ends today. You play Monday. Mullaney, you've drawn your salary for two weeks with that spiked foot. If you can't run on it, well, all right. But I put it up to your good faith. I've played the game, and I know it's hard to run on a sore foot. But you can do it. "'Ashwell, your ankle is lame, I know.' "'Now can you run?' "'Sure I can. I'm not a quitter. I'm ready to go in,' replied Ashwell. Braddy, how about you?' I said, turning to my star twirler. Connolly, I've seen as fast a team and as bad a rut, and yet pull out,' returned Radburn. "'We're about due for the brace. When it comes, look out. As for me, well, my arm isn't right, but it's acting these warm days in a way that tells me it will be soon.' "'It's been worked too hard. "'Can't you get another pitcher? "'I'm not knocking her or her cairns. "'They're good for their turn. "'But we need a new man to help out. "'And he must be a crackerjack "'if we're going to get back to the lead.' "'Where on earth can I find such a pitcher?' "'I shouted, almost distracted. "'Well, that's up to you. "'You're the manager,' replied Radburn. "'Up to me it certainly was, "'and I cuddled my brains for inspiration.' After I'd given up in hopelessness, it came in the shape of a notice I read in one of the papers. It was a brief mention of an amateur Worcester ball team being shut out in a game with a Rickettsville 9. Rickettsville played Sunday ball, which gave me an opportunity to look them over. It took some train riding and then a journey by coach to get to Rickettsville. I mingled with the crowd of talking rustics. There was only one little bleachers, and this was loaded to the danger point with the feminine adherence of the teams. Most of the crowd centered alongside and back of the catcher's box. I edged in and got a position just behind the stone that served as home plate. Hunting of a player in this way was no new thing to me. I was too wise to make myself known before I had sized up the merits of my man. So, before the players came upon the field, I amused myself watching the rustic fans and listening to them. Then a roar announced the appearance of the Ricketville team and their opponents, who wore the name of Spatsburg on their Canton flannel shirts. The uniforms of these country amateurs would have put a Philadelphia mummers parade to the blush, at least for bright colors. But after one amused glance, I got down to the stern business of the day, and that was to discover a pitcher, and failing that, baseball talent of any kind. We'll return to The Rube by Zane Gray, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Never shall I forget my first glimpse of the Rickettsville Twirler. He was far over six feet tall and as lean as a fence rail. He had a great shock of light hair, a sunburned, sharp-featured face, wide, sloping shoulders, and arms enormously long. He was about as graceful and had about as much of a baseball walk as a crippled cow. "'He's a rube,' I thought to myself, in disgust and disappointment. But when I'd seen him throw one ball to his catcher, I grew as keen as a fox on the scent. "'What speed he had!' "'I got round closer to him "'and watched him with sharp, eager eyes. "'He was a giant. "'To be sure, he was lean, "'raw-boned as a horse, "'but powerful. "'What won me at once was his natural, easy swing. "'He got the ball away with scarcely any effort. "'I wondered what he could do "'when he brought the motion of his body into play. "'Hey, bub, what might be the pitcher's name?' "'I asked of a boy. "'Huh, mister!' His name might be Dennis, but it ain't Huh, replied this country youngster. Evidently my question had thrown some implication upon this particular player. I reckon you'd be a stranger in these parts, said a pleasant old fellow. His name's Hurdle. Whitaker Hurdle. Wit for short. He ain't lost a god darn game this summer. No siree. Never pitched any before another. Hurdle, I thought. What a remarkably fitting name. Rickettsville chose the field, and the game began. Hurdle swung with his easy motion. The ball shot across like a white bullet. It was a strike, and so was the next, and the one succeeding. He could not throw anything but strikes, and it seemed the Spatzburg players could not make even a foul. Outside of Hurdle's work, the game meant little to me, and I was so fascinated by what I saw in him that I could hardly contain myself. After the first few innings, I no longer tried to. I yelled with the Rickettsville Rooters. The man was a wonder. A blind baseball manager could have seen that. He had a straight ball, shoulder high, level as a stretched string, and fast. He had a jump ball, which he evidently worked by putting on a little more steam, and it was the speediest thing I ever saw in the way of a shoot. He had a wide sweeping out curve, wide as the blade of a mowing scythe. And he had a drop, an unhittable drop. He did not use it often, for it made his catcher dig too hard into the dirt. But whenever he did, I glowed all over. Once or twice he used an underhand motion and sent in a ball that fairly swooped up. It couldn't have been hit with a board. And best of all, dearest to the manager's heart, he had control. Every ball he threw went over the plate. He couldn't miss it. To him that plate was as big as a house. "'What a find!' Already I had visions of the long-looked-for brace of my team, and of the pennant, and the little cottage, and the happy light of a pair of blue eyes. What he meant to me, that country pitcher, hurdle. He shut out the Spatsburg team without a run, or a hit, or even a scratch. Then I went after him. I collared him and his manager, and there, surrounded by the gaping players, I brought him and signed him before any of them knew exactly what I was about. I didn't haggle. I asked the manager what he wanted and produced the cash. I asked Hurdle what he wanted, doubled his ridiculously modest demand, paid him in advance, and got his name to the contract. Then I breathed a long, deep breath, the first one for weeks. Something told me that with Hurdle's signature in my pocket, I had the Eastern League pennant. Then I invited all concerned down to the Rickettsville Hotel. "'We made connections at the railroad junction "'and reached Worcester at midnight in time for a good sleep. "'I took the silent and backward pitcher to my hotel. "'In the morning we had breakfast together. "'I showed him about Worcester "'and then carried him off to the ball grounds. "'I had ordered morning practice, "'and, as morning practice is not conducive "'to the cheerfulness of ball players, "'I wanted to reach the dressing room a little late. "'When we arrived, all the players had dressed "'and were out on the field.' "'I had some difficulty in fitting Hurdle with a uniform, "'and when I did get him dressed, "'he resembled a two-legged giraffe "'decked out in white shirt, gray trousers, "'and maroon stockings. "'Spears, my veteran first baseman "'and captain of the team, was the first to see us. "'Suffering umpires!' yelled Spears. "'Here, you mix! "'Look at what Con's got with him!' "'What a yell burst from that sore "'and disgruntled bunch of ball tossers. "'My players were a grouchy set in practice anyway.' "'and today they were in their meanest mood. "'Hey, beam pole. "'Get on to the stilts! "'Con, where did you find that?' "'I cut short their chaffing "'with a sharp order for batting practice. "'Regular line-up now. "'No monkey biz,' I went on. "'Take two cracks and a bunt. "'Here, Hurdle,' I said, "'drawing him toward the pitcher's box. "'Don't pay any attention to their talk. "'That's only the fun of ball players. "'Go in now and practice a little. Lamb a few over.' Hurdle's big, freckled hands closed nervously over the ball. I thought it best not to say more to him, for he had a rather wild look. I remembered my own stage fright upon my first appearance in fast company. Besides, I knew what my amiable players would say to him. I had a secret hope and belief that presently they would yell upon the other side of the fence. McCall, my speedy little left fielder, led off at bat. He was full of ginger, chipper as a squirrel— sarcastic as only a tried ball player can be. Put him over, Slats, put him over, he called, viciously swinging his ash. Hurdle stood stiff and awkward in the box and seemed to be rolling something in his mouth. Then he moved his arm. We all saw the ball dart down straight, that is, all of us except McCall, because if he had seen it, he might have jumped out of the way. Crack! The ball hit him on the shin. McCall shrieked, We all groaned. That crack hurt all of us. Any baseball player knows how it hurts to be hit on the shin bone. McCall waved his bat madly. Rube! 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 He yelled. Then and there, Hurdle got the name that was to cling to him all his baseball days. McCall went back to the plate, red in the face, mad as a hornet, and he sidestepped every time Rube pitched a ball. He never even ticked one and retired in disgust "'Limping and swearing. "'Ashwell was next. "'He didn't show much alacrity. "'On Rube's first pitch, down one Ashwell flattened the dust. "'The ball whipped the hair of his head. "'Rube was wild, and I began to get worried. "'Ashwell hit a couple of measly punks, "'but when he essayed a bunt, the gang yelled derisively at him. "'What's he got?' "'The old familiar cry of batters when facing a new pitcher. "'Stringer went up, bold and formidable.' That was what made him the great hitter he was. He loved to bat. He would have faced anybody. He would have faced even a cannon. New curves were a fascination to him, and speed for him, in his own words, was apple pie. In this instance, surprise was in store for Stringer. Rube shot up the straight one, then the wide curve, then the drop. Stringer missed them all, struck out, and fell down ignominiously. It was the first time he had fanned that season he looked dazed. We had to haul him away. I called off the practice, somewhat worried about Rube's showing, and undecided whether or not to try him in the game that day. So I went to Radburn, who had quietly watched Rube while on the field. Raddy was an old pitcher, and he had seen the rise of a hundred stars. I told him about the game at Rickettsville and what I thought of Rube, and frankly asked his opinion. "'Con, you've made the find of your life,' said Raddy, quietly and deliberately. This from Radburn was not only comforting, it was relief, hope, assurance. I avoided Spears, for it would hardly be possible for him to regard the rube favorably, and I kept under cover until time to show up at the grounds. Buffalo was on the ticket for that afternoon, and the Bisons were leading the race and playing in top-notch form. I went into the dressing room while the players were changing suits, "'because there was a little unpleasantness "'that I wanted to spring on them "'before we got on the field. "'Boys,' I said curtly, Hurdle works today. "'Cut loose now and back him up.' "'I had to grab a bat and pound on the wall "'to stop the uproar. "'Did you much hear what I said? "'Well, it goes. "'Not a word now. "'I'm handling this team. "'We're in bad, I know, "'but it's my judgment to pitch Hurdle, "'Rube or no rube, "'and it's up to you to back him. THAT'S THE BASEBALL OF IT. GRUMBLING AND MUTTERING, THEY PASSED OUT OF THE DRESSING ROOM. I KNEW BALL PLAYERS. IF Hurdle SHOULD HAPPEN TO SHOW GOOD FORM, THEY WOULD TURN IN A FLASH. RUBE TAGGED RELUCTANTLY IN THEIR REAR. HE LOOKED LIKE A MAN IN A TRANCE. I WANTED TO SPEAK ENCOURAGINGLY TO HIM, BUT RATTY TOLD ME TO KEEP QUIET. IT WAS INSPIRING TO SEE MY TEAM PRACTICE THAT AFTERNOON. THERE HAD COME A SUBTLE CHANGE. I foresaw one of those baseball climaxes that can be felt and seen, but not explained. Whether it was a hint of the hoped-for brace, or only another flash of form before the final letdown, I had no means to tell. But I was on edge. Carter, the umpire, called out the batteries, and I sent my team onto the field. When that long, lanky, awkward rustic started for the pitcher's box, I thought the bleachers would make him drop in his tracks. The fans were sore on any one of those days, and a new pitcher was bound to hear from them. Where, oh where, oh where? Connelly's found another dead one. Scarecrow! Look at his pants! Somebody pad his legs. Then the inning began, and things happened. Rube had marvelous speed, but he couldn't find the plate. He threw the ball the second he got it. "'He hit men, walked men, and fell all over himself trying to field bunts. "'The crowd stormed and railed and hissed. "'The Bisons pranced round the bases and yelled like Indians. "'Finally they retired with eight runs. 8 runs! Enough to win two games! "'I couldn't have told how it happened. "'I was sick and all but crushed. "'Still I had a blind, dogged faith in the Big Rustic. "'I believed he hadn't got the right kind of start.' "'It was a trying situation. "'I called Spears and Ratty to my side and talked fast. "'It's all off now. "'Let the dinged rube take his medicine,' growled Spears. "'Don't take him out,' said Ratty. "'He's not showing at all what's in him. "'The blamed hayseed is up in the air. "'He's crazy. "'He doesn't know what he's doing. "'I tell you, Con, he may be scared to death, "'but he's dead in earnest.' "'Suddenly I recalled the advice "'of the pleasant old fellow at Rickettsville.' Spears, you're the captain, I said sharply. Go after the rube. Wake him up. Tell him he can't pitch. Call him Pogie. That's a name that stirs him up. Well, I'll be danged. He looks it, replied Spears. Here, rube. Get off the bench. Come here. Rube lurched toward us. He seemed to be walking in his sleep. His breast was laboring, and he was dripping with sweat. Who ever told you you could pitch? asked Spears genially. He was a master at baseball ridicule. I've never yet seen the youngster who could stand his badinage. He said a few things, then wound up with, Come now, you cross between a hayrack and a wagon tongue. Get sore and do something. Pitch if you can. Show us. Do you hear, you toe-headed pogey?" Rube jumped as if he'd been struck. His face flamed red, and his little eyes turned black. He shoved a big fist under Captain Spears' nose. Mister, I'll lick you for that. "'After the game, and I'll show you doggone well how I can pitch.' "'Good!' exclaimed Ratty, and I echoed his word. Then I went to the bench and turned my attention to the game. Someone told me that McCall had made a couple of fouls, and after waiting for two strikes and three balls, had struck out. Ashwell had beat out a bunt in his old swift style, and Stringer was walking up to the plate on the moment. It was interesting, even in a losing game, to see Stringer go to bat.' We all watched him, as we had been watching him for weeks, expecting him to break his slump with one of the drives that made him famous. Stringer stood to the left side of the plate, and I could see the bulge of his closely locked jaw. He swung on the first pitched ball. With a solid rap, we all rose to watch that hit. The ball lined first, then soared, and did not begin to drop till it was far beyond the right field fence. For an instant we were all still. So were the bleachers. Stringer had broken his slump with the longest drive ever made on the grounds. The crowd cheered as he trotted around the bases behind Ashwell. Two runs. "'Con, how'd you like that drive?' he asked me, with a bright gleam in his eyes. "'Oh, a butte! I replied, incoherently. The players on the bench were all as glad as I was. Henley flew out to left. Mullaney smashed a two-bagger to right. Then Gregg hit safely, but Mullaney, in trying to score on the play was out of the plate. Four hits! I tell you, fellas, something's coming off,' said Ratty. "'Now, if only Rube!' What a difference there was in that long rustic. He stalked into the box, unmindful of the hooting crowd and grimly-faced Schultz, the first batter-up for the Bisons. This time Rube was deliberate, and where he had not swung before, he now got his body and arm into a full motion. The ball came in like a glint of light, Schultz looked surprised. The umpire called, STRIKE! Wow! yelled the Buffalo coacher. Rube sped up the side-wheeler, and Schultz reached wide to meet it and failed. The third pitch was the lightning drop, straight over the plate. The batter poked weakly at it. Then Carl struck out, and Manning following did likewise. Three of the best hitters in the Easter League retired on nine strikes. That was no fluke. I knew what it meant, and I sat there hugging myself with the hum of something joyous in my ears. Gregg had a glow on his sweaty face. Oh, but say, boys, take a tip from me! The Rube's a world beater. Ratty knew it. He sized up that swing, and now I know it. Get wise, you itch! When old Spears pasted a single through shortstop, the Buffalo manager took Clary out of the box and put in Vane, their best pitcher. Bogart advanced the runner to second but was thrown out on the play. Then Rube came up. He swung a huge bat and loomed over the bison's twirler. Rube had the look of a hitter. He seemed to be holding himself back from walking right into the ball. And he hit one high and far away. The fast Carl couldn't get under it, although he made a valiant effort. Spears scored, and Rube's long strides carried him to third. The cold crowd in the stands came to life. Even the sore bleachers opened up. McCall dumped a slow teaser down the line, a hit that would easily have scored Rube, but he ran a little way, then stopped, tried to get back, and was easily touched out. Ashwell's hard chance gave the bison shortstop an error, and Stringer came up with two men on base. Stringer hit a foul over the right-field fence, and the crowd howled. Then he hit a hard, long drive straight into the center fielder's hands. "'Con, I don't know what to think, but dang me if we ain't hitting the ball,' said Spears." Then to his players. A little more of that and we're back in our old shape. All in a minute. At now. Rube, you dinged old pogie, Pitch. Rube towed the rubber, wrapped his long brown fingers round the ball, stepped out as he swung, and zing! That inning he unloosed a few more kinks in his arm, and he tried some new balls upon the bisons. But whatever he used, and wherever he put them, the result was the same. They cut the plate, and the bisons were powerless. That inning marked the change in my team. They had come back. The hoodoo had vanished. The championship Worcester team was itself again. The Bisons were fighting, too, but Rube had them helpless. When they did hit a ball, one of my infielders snapped it up. No chances went to the outfield. I sat there listening to my men and reveled in a moment that I had long prayed for. "'Now you're pitching some, Rube. Another strike. Get him aboard,' called Ashwell. "'Ding em Rube, ding em came from Captain Spears. "'Speed! Oh, no!' yelled Bogart at third base. "'It's all off, Rube, all off!' So with the wonderful pitching of an angry Rube, the Worcester team came into its own again. I sat through it all without another word, without giving a signal. In a way I realized the awakening of the bleachers, and heard the pound of feet and the crash, but it was the spirit of my team that thrilled me. Next to that the work of my new find absorbed me. I gloated over his easy, deceiving swing. I rose out of my seat when he threw that straight fastball, swift as a bullet, true as a plumb line. And when those hard-hitting, sure-bunting bisons chopped in vain at the wonderful drop, I choked back a wild yell, for Rube meant the world to me that day. In the eighth, the score was eight to six. The bisons had one scratch hit to their credit, but not a runner had got beyond first base. Again Rube held them safely. One man striking out, another fouling out, and the third going out on a little fly. Crash! 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 The bleachers were making up for many games in which they could not express their riotous feelings. "'It's a cinch! We'll win!' yelled a fan with a voice. Rube was the first man up in our half of the night, and his big bat lambed the first ball safe over second base. The crowd, hungry for victory, got to their feet and stayed upon their feet, calling, cheering for runs. It was the moment for me to get in the game, and I leaped up, strung like a wire, and white-hot with inspiration. I sent Spears to the coaching box with orders to make Rube run on the first ball. I gripped McCall with hands that made him wince. Then I dropped back on the bench, spent and panting. It was only a game, but it meant so much. Little McCall was dark as a thundercloud, and his fiery eyes snapped. He was the fastest man in the league, and could have bunted an arrow from a bow. The foxy baseman, third baseman, edged in. Mac feinted to bunt toward him, then turned his bat inward and dumped a teasing curve ball down the first baseline. Rube ran as if in seven-league boots. Mac's short legs twinkled. He went like the wind. He leaped into first base with his long slide and beat the throw. The stands and bleachers seemed to be tumbling down. For a moment, the air was full of deafening sound. Then came the pause, the dying away of clatter and roar. The close waiting, suspended quiet. Spears' clear voice, as he coached Rube, in its keen note, seemed inevitable of another run. Ashwell took his stand. He was another left hand hitter, and against a right hand pitcher, in such circumstances as these, the most dangerous of men. Vane knew it. Ellis, the bison captain, knew it, as showed plainly in his signal to catch Rube at second. But Spears' warning held or frightened Rube on the bag. Vane wasted a ball, then another. Ashwell could not be coaxed. Wearily, Vane swung. The shortstop raced out to get in line for a possible hit through the wide space to his right, and the second baseman got on his toes as both base runners started. Crack! The old story of the hit-and-run game. Ashwell's hit crossed sharply where a moment before the shortstop had been standing. With gigantic strides, the room rounded the corner and scored. McCall flitted through second, and diving into third with a cloud of dust, got the umpire's decision. When Stringer hurried up with Mac on third and Ash on first, the whole field seemed racked in a deafening storm. Again it subsided quickly. The hopes of the Worcester fans had been crushed too often of late for them to be fearless. But I had no fear. I only wanted the suspense ended. I was like a man clamped in a vice. Stringer stood motionless. Mac bent low with the sprinter's stoop. "'Ash watched the pitcher's arm and slowly edged off first. "'Stringer waited for one strike and two balls. "'Then he hit the next. "'It hugged the first baseline, bounced fiercely past the bag, "'and skipped over the grass to bump hard into the fence. "'McCall romped home, and lame Ashwell beat any run he ever made to the plate. "'Rolling, swelling, crashing were a frenzied feet "'could not down the high-pierced sustained yell of the fans. "'It was great! It was great!' Three weeks of submerged, bottled baseball joy exploded in one mad outburst. The fans, too, had come into their own again. We scored no more, but the Bisons were beaten. Their spirit was broken. This did not make the Rube let up in their last half-inning, either. Grim and pale, he faced them. At every long step and swing, he tossed his shock of light hair. At the end, he was even stronger than at the beginning. He still had the glancing, floating airy quality that baseball players call speed, and he struck out the last three batters. In the tumult that burst over my ears, I sat staring at the dots on my scorecard. Fourteen strikeouts! One scratch hit! No base on balls since the first inning. That told the story which dead in senses doubted. There was a roar in my ears. Someone was pounding me. As I struggled to get into the dressing room, the crowd mobbed me. "'but I didn't hear what they yelled. "'I had a kind of misty veil before my eyes "'in which I saw that lanky rube magnified into a glorious figure. "'I saw the pennant waving "'and the gleam of a white cottage through the trees "'and a trim figure waiting at the gate. "'Only then did I roll into the dressing room. "'Somehow it seemed strange to me. "'Most of the players were stretched out in peculiar convulsions. "'Old spears sat with a drooping head.' Then a wild, flaming eyed giant swooped upon me. With a voice of thunder, he announced, I'm-a-gonna-lick you, too. After that, we never called him any name except the rube. Thanks for joining us for this great Zane Grey story, the rube. We do appreciate reviews, so if you enjoyed this story, and if you enjoy our show at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, please do stop a moment, you the UAPListers, and send us a kind review. We would appreciate that. Very, very much. We also appreciate our Patreon supporters. Just go to patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork and pledge anywhere from 2 to $10 a month just to see 1001 make it to 2001 and get more stories like this one. We appreciate our Patreon supporters very much. And we ask you to join the team. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.